Welcome to the Torcana Real Estate Investment Show with Colin Murphy, a podcast for anyone who wants to learn more about building a rental property portfolio with strong cash flow and stable tenants. Here's your host, Colin Murphy. Hello, everybody. This is Colin Murphy here, and welcome to Torcana Podcast 37. I've got my co-host, David Shaw, here with me today. How are you doing, David? Doing very well, Colin. Very excited. Let's get going. Let's do it. Yeah, this is our second one. We got a lot of good feedback with the last podcast where we talked about our real estate journey together. That was episode 36, if anybody wants to listen to it after this. But today's episode is for people who want to know the best way to start or more importantly, to grow their rental portfolio. I mean, there's loads of information out there about real estate, like 10 times as much as there was five or 10 years ago. And it can be very, very confusing for anybody. I don't care how good you are. And a lot of buyers I speak to they often think about buying one and seeing how it goes because there's so much stuff out there or worry that they, they should wait for the perfect time, like usually a downturn or, or a recession or whatever to invest their limited funds because they might have thirty dollars or $40,000 saved up and they want to use that for one nice rental. So they have to wait for the perfect time to buy that rental. And those scenarios or those feelings are very understandable, but I wouldn't necessarily agree that they're important in the bigger picture. So... You know, speaking of bigger pictures, just let me illustrate one with a quick thought experiment. Some of you might actually have heard this before, but I think it's a useful way to to start this podcast because myself and David are going to cover a lot of ground and a lot of interesting topics in this one. So just picture for a minute that you're back in 1998. All right. So for some of our listeners, that's not that long ago. For others, it might be a very long time ago. So what happened in 1998? The International Space Station was just getting built. France won the Soccer World Cup. A uh, Good Friday Agreement was signed in Ireland. That was a big deal. Biggest story in 1998. You remember what it was, David? Y2K, I'm going to assume. Y2K was a big story, but it wasn't as big as Bill Clinton and Monica Lewinsky. <laughs> it was a big story. <laughs> we, we won't go there. <laughs> so that was the biggest story in 1998 by far. And just pretend that you'd bought 10 houses in 1998 for let's say $150,000 each. And let's pretend that you're putting down $30,000 in each one, okay? So you put down $300,000. And I know there's escrows and closing costs, but let's just pretend you bought 10 houses for $150,000 and it cost you $30,000 or $300,000 in total to buy those houses. And they're all rented out and you've got those mortgages moving along. So this is 1998. And what happened within three years, you had a little bit of growth, but then you had a huge stock market crash in 2001 and you had 9-11 and real estate uh, took a little bit of a dip. So maybe they went from $150,000 each to maybe $140,000 each or $135,000 maximum. But then what happened after that? You had this crazy, almost unprecedented real estate boom from 2002 all the way to 2007 and 2008. And that portfolio of yours, those 10 doors probably went from $150,000 each to maybe $250,000 or even $300,000 each. And now you're feeling pretty clever. You're walking with a little spring in your step. You're feeling pretty good. You've got a $3 million portfolio and you think this is pretty easy, this whole real estate gig, you know? But what happens then? There's a huge stock market crash, financial crisis, great recession, et cetera, and prices fall precipitously for several years. And, you know, fast forward to 2010, and you've probably gone from two fifty to three hundred thousand a door all the way back down to one fifty again, maybe even lower, depending on where you bought them. So now you're depressed, you're feeling bad, your real estate's like a roller coaster. You don't know if this is for you. But you just you just hold on to them. You don't panic. You just you're tipping away. The the tenants are in there, they're still paying the rent. Maybe you've had a little bit of turnover, but they got rented out again. And you've had nine or ten years of pretty solid growth from 2010, 2011, all the way up to 2018 and 2019. And now maybe prices have gone back up to 200 or 220. doesn't really matter. But what happens after 20, 21 years, you've, you've put your rental income to work and you've paid off all those mortgages. So you borrowed 80% of the purchase prices of those homes. You didn't pay it back. You were responsible for it, but the tenants paid that back for you. And they paid you a little bit extra on the side. And you had you know, an inflation hedge. You're getting depreciation on your tax returns. You're getting a couple hundred dollars a month. And now you have 10 houses worth maybe two hundred to $220,000 each. So you have a $2.2 million portfolio that you spent 
if you can remember, $150,000 of your own money because you only paid the 20% deposits. The other 80% has been paid off over those 20 years. And what I wanted to illustrate is that you know, the last 20 years has been as topsy-turvy as you're likely to see in any future 20-year period with that initial crash, a huge recovery, another huge crash, another significant recovery. It's unlikely the next 20 years are going to be as, as dramatic as that, but it, whether they are or aren't doesn't really matter. The point is, is that if you hold on to real estate long enough and you just keep your head and keep calm through those very significant bumps in the road, you can come out a multimillionaire after just buying 10 houses for $30,000 each. You don't need to be brilliant. You don't need to have a lot of luck. You just need to keep solid, just keep a goal in mind. And, and, and a goal is what it's all about because if you have a goal in mind, it's a lot easier to get things done. You know, You need to know where you're going if you ever want to get there. And the people that had a purpose when they bought those 10 properties and their purpose was to hold on to them long enough so that the mortgage gets paid off and then they're going to get $10,000, $15,000 in net rental income, they're a lot more grounded. They're a lot more prepared to get over those bumps in the road. And if people that didn't have a goal at all, or they're just buying properties because they heard it was a good thing and they kind of panic every time there's a crash or a boom, they're not going to have that 2.2 million portfolio at all. They might have sold it years ago and maybe even made a loss when they were selling it. So, you know, I think you should kind of bear that in mind. Just have a goal in mind and bear in mind that if you own enough real estate for long enough, you can achieve really, really great things. And if you're thinking about buying one or two and seeing how it goes and kind of take it from there, you know, the good news is you're not alone. You're not alone at all because there's about 18 million single family homes in the USA that are rental properties, okay? 18 million out of about 70 million single family homes. And believe it or not, about half of the entire stock of single family rentals in the USA is owned by people that have just one rental property. Just one rental property are owned, or half of all real estate rentals are owned by people with one rental property. And if you move up the chain just a little bit to people that own two to five rentals, which is not that much at all, that accounts for another 30%. So eight out of every 10 single family rentals are owned by mom and pop buyers with five rentals or less. I was just bowled over when I heard that because you hear these headlines about the, the big REITs, the big players, American Homes for Rent, Invitation Homes, but they're not just a tiny drop in the ocean. Those two companies own about 130,000 single family rentals between them. That's about 0.7% of the rental market single family rental market, about 0.2% of the entire SFR market. So it's not enough at all to affect rental rates or resale rates, which is why you know firms like ours can flip 100 homes a year and continue to stay very competitive and offer great value rental properties. So kind of good news is that the little guy who buys you know two to five rentals dominates the rental market. And that kind of combined weight, that combined heft means that they can't be pushed around by any big players. In other industries, you have a couple of big players that corner the market, but real estate isn't like that at all. I mean, the market market rates, rental rates, resale rates, they're not decided by the REITs. They're not decided by Wall Street. They're decided by regular small investors like you and me, and that's how it should be, and that's how it'll continue to be. Uh, you know, the bad news, if you can, it's not really bad news, but the bad news is that one to five rentals isn't really going to cut it if your aim is to achieve financial freedom through real estate. It's just not enough to make any significant difference in your life. And I know a lot of us have come from modest backgrounds and five houses might seem like a fortune. And, and I, I get that. I, I totally get that. I'm from a modest background as well. But it just isn't enough income. And the value of that doesn't really make much difference if you want financial freedom, if you want to travel, if you want to stop working, if you want to create real generational wealth, you need to be aiming a lot higher than the 80% of landlords that own five rentals or less. You want to be thinking about getting into that top 10%, top 5% of landlords. And once you do that, the sky's the limit. And kind of part of today's show is to discuss how you move up that ladder from owning one to five to 10 to more properties. And myself and David are going to discuss the different categories of real estate investors that are out there and how people can move up the ladder. and. So yeah, that's that's kind of my message to start off this show, David. Are you you agree with a lot of those sentiments? Yeah, Colin, I think it's it's that's a, that's a great intro, and it's a it's a really super powerful message. That simple goal setting. You know, mm-hmm. what is what is the intention? 
one to five houses, like you say, probably not going to dramatically change your life. It'll certainly have an impact on your life. But mm -hmm. true life-changing um, wealth from real estate is, is a, it's just generating intergenerational wealth through real estate is a massively interesting topic because it's open to all of us. I have met I have met so many different investors at every different uh, strata of the uh, investment um, the investment market, and I would say that it's not about brains. It's not about who's the smartest guy in the room. Mm -hmm. It's just really about a, a number of different considerations. So uh, I'll run through what I think are a couple of the considerations that I see. Um, that get in people's way. We're, we're, we're definitely going to go through and, and categorize, let's say, the, the, the four or five different categories of, of, of real estate investors that we see on a daily basis. But I want to just really quickly you know, get into like, what is the difference between a successful investor and a non-successful investor. That kind of 80% mm -hmm. of real estate investors kind of own one to three homes. And of that 80%, I'd love to know how many of them are accidental investors in that, you know, a couple meet each other, they both own a condo or an apartment or whatever else. They buy a house together and they're, they're left with two, two homes, his and hers. You know, I, I mean, an, uh, nothing wrong with this whatsoever, but I meet a lot of people and that's their entry level into real estate investing. And they, they, they stay at that level and they stay at that level for years, if not decades. Uh, and then they come back later on uh, at the end of their experience having owned these two rentals for 10 or 15 or 20 years. Mm -hmm. And they're like, man, that was good because these properties now, the mortgages are paid off. And so they're seeing in hindsight just the power of your renter paying off your mortgage. It's an extremely powerful thing. So what this podcast really is about is we're trying to get in front of that. So there's no point in hindsight saying, wow, I, you know, I, I wish I'd bought more. Um, because the one commodity that we know human, you can get more money again, you can apply yourself, you know, to a greater level in the future. But the one thing you can never get back is time. Mm -hmm. And real estate investing is about a direction that you're trying to achieve and uh, having the time in which to achieve it. So we are, you and I are bombarded what, you know, 60 plus year olds coming coming to us and coming late in the game to saying, I'm retiring in two years. I, I really like to start buying some investment homes. Well, yeah. guess what? The guy's got the money now, but he doesn't have the time. The time is running out. So what is it? What 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 is it when we're younger? You know, we, we deal, you and I deal with the smartest guys in the room, guys and girls um, who have achieved just such incredible heights in their careers. They're so smart. They're so intelligent. They have degrees and MBAs and just master's degrees in, 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 in engineering areas and finance areas. Sure. And, and I'm blown away by how smart these people are until I start to really consider about how financially savvy they are. And I'm, I'm neither smart nor financially savvy, but I think we do, both you and I, and do understand this, uh, this this conundrum here, where we've got the smartest guys, and yet they come to us very late in their careers, and they've you know now they have the money for the deposits, if you will, but they don't have the time, and it's a it's a this is a business about time. Yeah, so they've spent all their life learning how to make money, but they've spent very little time you know thinking about money or learning about what's money for, or how you can make money work for you. They're just working in a hospital or working in a big business or working as lawyers and, and they're getting good at earning money and probably good at spending money as well. But that's fundamentally different than being financially savvy and understanding the unique power of real estate, which is very different than any other investment out there. Well, getting back to your thought experiment then. So the idea here, let's say the goal is to have 10 B-type properties where somebody else has paid them back and you, mm -hmm. you know, in 20 years time, you've got a a $3 million portfolio and you've got a $15,000 a month income and somebody else has created that for you out of a $150,000 or $200,000 deposit. Let's just say that that's the true power of what we're talking about. What, what is it? What is it is getting in people's way? Well, I, I contest that the first thing, first things first is they don't see the mountaintop 
as you have just outlined it. I just don't think they start off um, with a clear and defined goal. No, they're in the weeds. They're not, you know, they're not looking at the forest and the trees. They're thinking about broken ACs and broken heaters and what happens if it's vacant and what happens if it's empty or what happens if the interest rate, you know. Yes. I mean, they're just thinking about everything except what will happen if you own it long enough. Yeah, I think the psychology, the mind games, um, is probably one of the bigger, the bigger hindrances. I think there's psychology plays a, a lot in how you're going to approach your own life and your own success. And you know, the current zeitgeist is definitely going to influence your behavior, and that can enhance or hinder your financial future. So, to, to, to expand on that just real quick, there's a lot of people who come to me and go, David, what do you think about the current? Um, the current financial situation? What do you think it's going to look like next year or the year after? Mm. And the bottom line is, is that if you are trying to, you know, you've only got a certain amount of time in your, in your, in your life. You've only got a certain amount of time in your, in your career to make these kind of decisions. So if you're trying to time the financial market, so let's say right now you, you say, okay, well, I'm not going to wait for a financial downturn, which might take two years. Um, might take three years. And then you've got to actually let the downturn itself play itself out. And then it's got to be a real estate downturn as well, which it might not be. And then you've got to wait for it to start rising again. And invariably, very few people are very good at predicting when things are going to turn around. And when they do turn around, they say, oh, I've already missed the bottom. So they start getting... Uh, they start not making the right moves and that. The bottom, the bottom line is, is, is the, 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 the current psychology of your mind is almost always getting in your way of becoming independently wealthy. And that it, you are the one thing that you're wasting in that six or seven or eight years trying to time the market is you're, you're wasting time. Mm-hmm. Time, time, time. So you've wasted all, already about 33%. In a, in a, you know, waiting six years to buy your home until it's the right time to do it, you've just wasted 33% of the longevity of what it takes to become financially wealthy. I also think the initial goal setting and the resilience of goal setting. So what I mean by that is set a goal. I'm going to own 10 homes. Most people that I come across cannot realistically answer the following question. Where do you see yourself at retirement? You know, it's, it might be 15 years away. It might be 18 years away. It might be something like that. But where do you actually see yourself there? Where do you see yourself the day you retire? And what will you have done to, to make that retirement more comfortable? And the bottom line is, is it's, it's, a difficult, it's a difficult even thought for a lot of people because it's frightening and it's scary. So mm-hmm. unless you do something now, that's going to continue to be a scary date for you. So I think setting a goal, and having the resilience to follow through on that goal is extremely important, and it, it's often lost to people. And obviously, setting a goal is one thing, and having the resilience to 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 break through, uh, because real estate is not an easy business. No. Um, but you need a strategy, you know. And guess what? Owning real estate is not is not rocket science. It's not. It's 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 probably the more simple thing that's out there. It's in your control. The, the property itself is, is in your control. Most people understand what a house is. Most people understand what the 20 different components of a house is. Um, you know, so setting up a strategy and, and following through on that strategy is, 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 is extremely important because so many people are out there with a short-term strategy and short-term tactics. Well, I'm going to wait for the next downturn or I'm going to do this. I'm going to wait for rates to go up. I'm going to wait for rates to go down. Setting a long-term strategy and sticking with that strategy is an extremely important part of this puzzle, okay? So stop worrying about recessions. Stop the negative narrative. Start implementing the one asset you have, and that asset is time. Now, you and I... um, I've talked about this a lot as well, is the risk-reward paradigm. You, know, you did a podcast on it recently, Colin, where you said like the fear of loss. But let's, let's look at that picture that you just put. So we're going to put down, what, $150,000? Mm-hmm. We're going to turn it into you know, $2 million, $2.5 million. Yep. So, so the risk is the initial capital. The reward is over $2 million. I fail to see where the capital risk is here in real estate. 
by and large, if you have a long-term goal and you have a long-term strategy, I'm not saying that there's no capital risk, there is, but I, I personally haven't seen it. Um, more often than not, the capital um, risk is, is that your the value of your home may fluctuate, may fluctuate this way or that way. But yep. your actual initial capital, I've very rarely in my life seen people lose their initial capital in real estate unless there's... Only if they panic and actually sell when the house price fell and they're selling for more than what it's worth. Then yeah, but that's... If you have your reserves and you have a long-term plan, there's absolutely no need to do that. I mean, no, nobody right. should be selling a house for less than they bought it at all. I mean, just hold on to it long enough. And like you said, this trying to time the market is, is, is high risk. That's very high risk. It's, it's about your, if you're in it long enough, it's your time in the market. And if you're in it long enough, you don't need to stress about any of that. It's actually very, very, very little stress involved in owning a real estate portfolio if you have a long-term plan because you don't sweat the small stuff. And I talked about that a lot recently, just you don't sweat the small stuff when you have a big long-term plan in place. You have the funds to take care of the small stuff and you have a property manager to deal with 95% of the small stuff, but that's it. You don't, don't sweat it. You've got your reserves to cover it and you know the long-term benefit is because you can scale up that initial deposit dramatically and create much, much higher income streams than you would ever be able to do just working with your own time in a nine to five job. And I don't care what your job is if you're, if you're like an eye surgeon or if you're just working in a regular office, it's a lot easier to earn money uh, from rental properties, 10, 15, 20 rental properties. These are people that are paying you up to one third of their income. I don't know what other company will, who, who else gives a company one third of their income? You're not giving Amazon one third of your income. You're not giving Apple a third of your income. But if you own 10 rental properties and they're all rented out, $1,300 each, those guys living there are giving you a third of their money. I don't know a better way of, of earning a high income stream than doing that. Colin, this is that, it, it's, it's so profound, even just to think about what you've just said. And yet it is the small stuff that stop most people from achieving that. Um, we're going to get into the different categories of, mm. of investor that we see, but I cannot stress to uh, our listeners here how important it is not to sweat the small stuff. I call these the, the, the little psychological bullets that are out here to kind of knock you down when you're small. And um, we've dealt with this in, in a previous podcast before, but what, what Colin just said there is, is really, really important. And it, it took me a long time to, to learn how to not sweat the small stuff. Um, it is, it is the, the, the smaller your view of what it is that you want to achieve. So like you buy one house and you start to micromanage that one house. You can look at it and, and do your due diligence, micro, micro detail. You're really setting yourself up for a fall because you are sweating the small stuff. The reality is, is if you're going to get to that 10 or 15 homes that truly is going to change your, your life and, and, and your wealth and your children's, outcomes mm -hmm. if you want to get to 10 or 20 you're going to hit you're going to get hit by daily you know you're going to get hit by daily small things so this went off here that broke here or the tenant did this over there or and it's it's getting resilient learning how to deal with these we're going to talk about some strategies to to deal with that in, in today's mm -hmm. podcast but it's it's learning how to not sweat the small stuff it's really the difference between the guys that I meet at, at the back of RIA meetings that are sitting there, they got 80 houses or 90 doors or 120 doors, you know, and they're old guys and these are not the smartest guys in the room. Um, but they have learned to be, they've got one thing on everybody else. It's just they're, they're resilient. They do not sweat the small stuff and they know how to absorb these little psychological bullets that they're hitting you uh, while you're building up your rental portfolio. So let's let's talk about these. these yeah, let's move on to these four categories, right? Um, yeah. Let's just dive straight in. So the first category we defined is research junkies. Uh, what way would you describe these guys, David? Research junkies are the most intelligent people that we meet. Um, mm -hmm. Just straight off the bat, they are they're highly educated by and large. And they have uh, an acute attention to detail, an attention to detail that actually frightens me and makes me feel like second guess myself. I'm like, oh, my God, I, I never even thought about asking, you know, those so 72 questions about 
you know, a, a, a home inspection. But the research junkies are, I, I, I really categorize them into one, uh, into one category, and that's it. Research junkies don't do deals. They have, they have no deals behind them. They, they can tell you everything about real estate. They can tell you um, everything, there, every buzzword there is in the market. But at the end of the day, they've done no business. And they, they might even have been researching. They've gone to real estate classes, real estate schools. They've listened to every podcast, but they've never done a deal. And the problem is, is that they are suffering from analysis paralysis. They're getting too deep uh, into the, the, the pluses and minuses. and They're getting too deep into, they're spending way too much time in front of a computer. Yep. They're spending no time in the field. They're not, a, they're not networking correctly with uh, experienced investors and people who've been, you know, been around the block once or twice. They're definitely scared of buying something that they're not in total control over. I think that, you know, these research junkies tend to be fairly much, con- fairly, very control orientated. They, they don't want to do something that they're not in total control over because they are in control over their day job. You know, they're, they're using their knowledge, their intelligence, their experience to be in total control of whatever their job is. But they're terrified of, of spending $150,000 in something where they have, you know, much, much less control over. They're not used to that. That's way outside their comfort zone. And that personality type is, is just going to have to evolve to get used to not being in the comfort zone when it comes to real estate, right? Yeah, I think that this this category as well, we call the you know the research junkies. They're also they're also very very risk adverse. And um, I listened to a, a brilliant podcast recently, uh, kind of summarized risk in the in the following: It's like if you're not prepared to take risks, you're going to work for somebody who is. And <laughs> I love that. Yeah, it's wonderful, isn't it? It's it's there is an element of risk to getting in your car in the morning. There's an element of risk to going out and working for Google. There's an element of risk going out and working for a startup. There's an element of risk in probably most things that we do, but we don't see it as risk because it's not directly our risk. We're not the decision makers. So, you know, the the research junkies and the analysis paralysis people are, you know, they're, they're so concerned about what could happen. Now, the bottom line is, is that your brain is an extremely effective worry machine. There's there no greater worry machine ever invented than the human brain. The brain is out there to throw out every possible scenario that could possibly go wrong. And then you take that brain and you apply that worry brain into the internet and you're going to start getting uh, confirmation bias really quickly. You're going oh, to start yeah. finding out why you should worry. And yes, this guy had a terrible experience and you go into forums and blogs and you know, this person had a had a terrible day and this guy's like, no, 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 this sucks. Don't ever do it. Real estate sucks or whatever. Okay. The bottom line is, is that when you, when, when that worry brain applies itself into uh, the cacophony of information that is the internet, you're going to get nothing done. And that $3 million that you might've had, you're not going to see it. Nope. You know, you'll have the $150,000 in your bank account that, you know, inflation is going to take care of that for you. But the bottom line is you're not going to have that $3 million. So the question is, Colin, what advice would we give to the, re- the research junkies who are, quite frankly, smartest guys in the room, but they're never going to do a deal? What, what, would you, what action do you think that they can take? That would help action them is way? the key word there, isn't it? That's what they need to do. They need to take action. And more specifically, they need to, if I was just to give you exact steps, decide on a market you want to invest in. They've probably done enough research on three or four markets. Decide on one of them that you're going to start in. Decide on who is the best team within that market that has a good track record of buying and renovating real estate and and building relations with investors in that market. Decide on a good property manager who has a long track record in that market as well. And then speak to experienced investors in that area. Number four, Get pre-qualified for your loan so that you've no excuse not to do it. Make sure you have your deposit in place. Make sure you have your reserves in place. And just make a commitment to buy a house within a certain time frame in that area. So you might decide, for example, that Tampa is a good market to buy my first rental property or my second rental property. You might decide that Colin and David at Torcana are a good team to do so. You might decide that so-and-so property manager is doing a great job in this area you might speak to a couple of references from people that have bought from us in the past. You might go to one of the many, many lenders out there that will pre-qualify you for a loan. 
and you might decide, I'm going to buy a house within three months, or I'm going to reserve a house within three months, and then just hold yourself to it. I mean, and better still, uh, you know, make this plan with your partner, with your spouse, and just hold each other to doing it, to taking the plunge, because once you get started, it's a lot easier to keep going. Once you've got that initial step taken, once you've got that momentum where you're buying a house, you're getting it closed, you're watching the rental checks coming in, it's very easy to buy the second and third and fourth. Once you get momentum, you won't stop. So you might have spent two or three or four years thinking about it, but once you actually do it, you'll be amazed at how quickly you can catch up with other people. Yeah, it's a, it's a little bit... Um... It's a little bit intimidating um, to making those first steps, but it, it's intimidating in every scenario. Uh, you go for a job interview, it's intimidating. Sure. But the more job interviews you go to, the less intimidating they become. It's like everything in life, you know? So the research junkies, the best advice then is to put down your books, put away your fear, put your research to the side, you kind of basically know what you need to know. And until you have any actual evidence that all these things are going to happen to you, proceed with an element of optimism because there are good people out there and there are good property managers out there and there are good tenants out there and there are good homes out there. And if you want to, if you, oh, if you want to get to 10 homes, you better start with one. So that's basically your device, Colin, right? That's it. All right, let's let's move on to category two then, which are the mom and pop investors. What what are you going to tell us about these guys, David? This is the most common category I see hmm. out there. Um, as I said, they, the mom and pop investors more often than not either inherited their mom's house, or they you know as they say a couple got together and they both owned condos or their own homes, and they you know. They're unintentional investors. They didn't really set out to become investors. And, you know, the key word here is that these mom and pop investors, I think the key word is that they're unintentional. You know, mm-hmm. um, they're, 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 they're kind of looking at it, but they, they haven't got their resilience built up. So, you know, they, they own their home, they, they own one or two homes, but they've been kind of taking in the, the rental income and they've been kind of putting it in their own personal bank account. And, you know, then all of a sudden, you know, a roof needs to be replaced or an air conditioner needs to be replaced. And we've talked about psychological bullets earlier on. They are two serious psychological bullets. Are you get a tenant that moves out and you get a, a $2,000 turnover expense or whatever it might be. So, or they get an unexpected. Or they might be managing the tenants themselves. You know, that's, that's a lot of work as well. And this often happens for people out of one or yeah. two. And more often than not, you're right. They actually manage these tenants themselves. So, you know, there's a lot of listeners out here will feel very, very familiar with what we're talking about right now. Mm-hmm. But the problem is, is that they are not, they don't have a, a, an explicit goal. They're not, okay, I'm going to get to 10 houses or I'm going to get to 20 houses. They don't have a, an explicit professional strategy in mm-hmm. place. So what happens is that the, these psychological bullets, and you know, you can call them monetary bullets or whatever you are, they start to get scarred by, oh my God, you know, that was $7,000. I hate real estate. Real estate's terrible. I'm not going to do this again. Oh, and there's an air conditioner. That, that really, that killed me. That set me back. No, no. What, the, unless you set out with a very clear plan. And what I mean by a clear plan is I personally, and I think you do the same, Colin, I have a family account on the side and any piece of real estate that I buy for the long term, I take 100% of the income from that home goes into a reserve account. I, I reserve account every dollar that comes into my, from my rentals so that when an air conditioner blows or a roof needs to get repaired or replaced or a kitchen needs to be repaired, I have an unexpected turnover, it doesn't affect me at all. I'm like, okay, needs to get done. There's the money. It's fine, you know, because yeah. I've been planning for it. So, so there is a strategy. Stuff you use to buy your groceries or put gas in your car or pay the school fees or, or whatever it might be. There's nothing worse than having your personal account, you know, hit by a new roof. I mean, have that stuff set aside. You have, Like you say, you have a separate account that's for your real estate income and expenses. And absolutely everybody should be doing that. And, you know, the people that freak out over $7 roof payment, 
don't even think about the fact that the tenant might have been paying $7,000 a year on their mortgage principal for the last 10 years. And they're freaking That's out right. about a roof uh, replacement right. that actually increases the value of their house. So, you, I mean, right. you have to put stuff in perspective and you have to kind of know your numbers. And the numbers aren't complicated. There's no calculus or trigonometry involved here. It's addition and subtraction and multiplication and division. And it's, there's lots of good spreadsheets out there that will help people track this stuff. Well, let's just say, again, in your, back to your thought experiment, let's say you've got 10 houses mm. and you are going to hold them over a 20-year period. Um, you know, I think it's fair to say that you should be allowing, allowing at least 10 uh, maybe even $15,000 in repairs over that 20-year period, okay? Oh, that sure. might sound like a lot of money. It's $150,000 that you're going to allow over a 20-year period. Oh, my God, $150,000. Guess what? $150,000 plus the $150,000 that you put down, that's $300,000, let us say, now in total. Um, but you still have a $3 million, $2.5 to $3 million portfolio. Does, does, does that $15,000 make a dent in it? Does that $4,000 air conditioner make a dent in it. No, no. The big picture, the big picture is $3 million of, of, of unencumbered wealth that you have sitting there, plus your $15,000, $17,000 a month that you're getting now because you've got no mortgage, you've got no, no other costs other than taxes and, and insurance and property management. But you have now $15,000 coming to you for the rest of your life. And then your wife or your kids, you know, they have that coming to them um, for the rest of their lives. So the big goal is not to worry about a, a $4,000 air conditioner. That's, that's a relevant, it literally is a relevant. Yeah, that, that's literally a week's rental income if you have those properties paid off. It's, it's nothing. That's right. And that's what most people, most people are not, are not financially set up. So, so the, the big question here with the, 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 the second category, the mom and pop investors, is they're accidental. If I could give anybody who finds himself in this category, uh, if I could give them any piece of advice, I would say become intentional landlords. Uh, put a property manager on all your properties. Make sure all of your income is going into a reserve fund, all of it. You, you live off your, your day job. Make, all, make sure all of your income is going into a reserve account. And guess what? In time, that reserve account will start to, it'll get from 15000 to 20000 to 30000 to 45000 You're going to have fifty, sixty thousand dollars $60,000 sitting in your reserve account. And then you can start buying more properties. You can use that to, you know, as your down payment for your next property and your next property. And then before yep. you know it, you start seeing that you've got some equity here. You're like, wow, I owe five properties. And, you know, I, I've, I've got, you know, over the five, I've got, $356,000 worth of equity. Let me, let me do a, a refinance here and buy more. So the, the, the second category, the mom and pop investors, there's a reason why 80% 80, 80 of people who own more than one home find themselves in this category. Yep. 80%. It's, a, it's, a, it's an incredible number that only 20% of investors break out of what we categorize as that mom and pop investor that owns one to three houses. I find that incredible. It is. It's, it's, it's amazing. And anybody that has one or two rentals, I mean, give yourself a little pat on the back because you're, far, you're much further ahead than most people that don't have any rental properties and other people that don't own property at all. So remember, you've done a lot of hard work in, in kind of getting a rental property and managing it and getting it, maintaining it and getting started. But that's the hard part. Now it's time to get some momentum and keep going because it's the next stage is where the life-changing action occurs. And, and remember that having seven or eight rentals is actually easier and less stressful than having one or two because you're doing a lot less of the work yourself. You've other people doing the work for you, specifically property managers. And you've got better relationships now with lenders. You have better relationships with, with sellers uh, home inspectors, other investors, other educators, you're just leveraging your, your knowledge and your buying power and you're, you're learning how to, this, I mean, this is all a game and, and, and getting one or two is actually the hard part and moving up beyond that is actually a lot more fun and much more life-changing. So I think the lessons for uh, the unintentional investors is become intentional, yep. um, really concentrate on building your team, and um, look at the bigger picture.
Right. So we're going to be very shocked at the name of our third category, uh, David. What is it? <laughs> I think we've labeled our third, our third category. <laughs> the, did pretty well. <laughs> the intentional investors. These, these are people who these are people who have decided that they can see the mountaintop. They have a mm-hmm. goal. They have a clear goal. And these are not the most intelligent people in the world. They're not the smartest guys in the room. These are just people that have a clear goal and a burning, burning ambition to get there. So they're intentional. And they're intentional about everything that they're doing. So they have no interest in getting bogged down in overly detailed analysis. They have no interest in uh, going out fixing toilets. They have no interest in spending their Friday night dealing with a leak. These are people who have worked hard to yeah. acquire anywhere between three and 10 rentals. And you've just you bit me to the post there. There's a, there's a fascinating thing uh, between unintentional and intentional investors is that intentional investors work less. Yeah. Just, they, they just have a different strategy. And that strategy, I only became comfortable owning real estate when I owned more than 10 homes. Mm-hmm. And that, that's fascinating. It, 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 you know, for the scariest time of my real estate investing career was when we were getting started with one, two, three, four homes. That was, that was when, you know, we were really, really micro-analyzing everything. So, you know, this podcast, by, by and large, is not us sitting on the mountaintop looking down. We, I've been in every one of these categories, as have you. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So let, let's talk about these intentional investors. They, they set up, they start off with a clear goal, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but they only represent, intentional investors only but represent... When you say clear goal, you mean like they know their why. They know why they want to put up with all of this hassle and, yeah. and this stress and, and these bumps on the road and, and keeping an eye on all these different things. They have a reason why they want to do that. And it might, it could be anything. It's not specific. There's no specific goal you need. And I don't mean having, like having earning 10,000 a month isn't a goal. The goal is what do you want the 10,000 a month for? What are you going to use that for? What do you need it for? That's, that's the why. That's what you need to, and it's not easy to figure that out. It's not something that you know, occurs naturally, but you want to, it might be because you want to, one of you, if there's a couple, one of you might want to stop working. Or you, know, you both might want to, to travel more or take more vacations or, or take up a hobby that you wouldn't be able to take if you're on somebody else's timetable, you know? So you, you need to know that why. And once you do, you've got that resilience to put up with the hassle it takes to go through these categories. So the people that are intentional investors, they've, they've got that down. They're, they're, they're in that journey already. That's why I call it. And there's an interesting thing about intentional investors. If you are going to become a professional investor, you have, you have definitely got to start being an intentional investor first. So I have had a lot of extremely successful engineers uh, and and professionals in my car uh, over the years. And Mm -hmm. um, it's incredible to me how how many of these people are in their kind of mid 40s, late 40s, early 50s. And they start seeing these like super smart kids coming below them who work for a fraction of the price that they do. They start to get a little bit jittery about like, you know, I'm well, you know, I ask why are why are you looking at real estate now? It's like, yeah, you know, I'd I kind of I'd really I'd really want to start learning this, and um, I'd like to think that I could kind of invest full time or become professional. Well, you're never ever ever going to get to anywhere close to being a professional investor if you don't go through the intentional investor stage. Would you agree with that? Yeah, absolutely. And these are people, intentional investors in our definition, these are people that have worked hard and they've got anywhere between three and 10 rentals. And obviously there's a difference between having three rentals and 10 rentals, but that's, that's the category of intentional investors. And they're in the top 15 to 20% of all single family home landlords. And they're accumulating real wealth. These are people that have million dollar portfolios and maybe $700,000 in loans that's getting paid down by tenants every month. And like you say, they could be high earners, like doctors or Silicon Valley engineers, and they might be just regular, regular people that have fought tooth and nail to to get those properties bought, and they're they're going through their Fannie and Freddie conventional loans, and like you said, that's like having three to ten rentals. That's definitely enough to make a, an impact on your possibilities for financial freedom if you own them long enough, right? 
Time, 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 time. Absolutely. 10 properties over a 20-year period. Mm. I get this as well, Colin. How, how, you know, I think, you know, us, we're both Irish. And we just simply do not have a 30-year fixed uh, program uh, in, in our country. No. And um, it just doesn't exist. And in fact, it's quite rare around the world. I don't know of another country that, that offers you 10 mortgages for a married couple, right? Um, well, 20 for a married couple, 10, 10 per, per person. 10, 10, yeah, there. 10 per person, right? Hmm. So that you can get to, you can get to uh, 20 homes as a married couple on 30-year fixed mortgages with conventional loans. There, there is no other place on the planet I know where the financial markets make it that easy to yep. get there. It's a uniquely and, American and, privilege. Absolutely. It really is a uniquely American privilege. And quite frankly, it's why I made the the, the, the hard slog and the years of visas and green cards and citizenship to, to get to get to this place. And mm-hmm. um, for exactly the reason that we're talking about here, it is an incredible, incredible country that offers this clear, defined, simple path to wealth and wealth accumulation. And it's just about getting through your own personal barriers and getting intentional, getting a strategy, putting a plan in place, and then moving forward with it. Mm-hmm. That's it. That's it. So, Colin, where, when, when we, and this is something that we, we deal with, you and I, from time to time, we move up to the next level. The intentional investors, they still work. They still have a job. Yep. They're getting there to 10 and 15 rentals. But now they're starting to accumulate some proper equity behind them. They've been, you know, they've been doing it 11 years, 12 years, 13 years. Mm-hmm. We then get to, um, we get to a point where I think a lot of people listening to this podcast really would like to get to. And what we call breakout investors, the people who get beyond that first 10, get beyond that first 15, and they start to really, really double down. And make some proper money in real estate. Do you want to talk about them, Colin, a little bit? Breakout investors. These are people we meet at the big conferences. These are people we meet. We meet yeah. them every, not every day of our lives, but we meet them when we when we get together with other um, pretty active real estate investors. Who are these people? How do they get there? And, 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 and they're tell not me a little bit about to, them. to spot. I mean, <laughs> they look like everybody else. They dress like everybody else. They're usually pretty soft spoken and humble, like like any regular guys. But these are professional investors that have you know serious double digit uh, real estate portfolios or even triple digit real estate portfolios i know several people in tampa that have triple digit real estate portfolios and they're pretty regular guys if you saw them ordering a coffee in starbucks there's nothing special about them but these are these are people that have overcome all of the barriers that we've just described some of them overcome all those barriers in 4 or 5 years and others do it in 20 years you know but They've had a lot of setbacks. They've had their bumps in the road. They've had their nasty surprises. They've probably seen at least one cycle of, of boom and bust. But they're looking at real estate from a truly long-term perspective. They've learned from their mistakes. They've got tremendous resilience. And uh, you know, they, these guys spend a lot of their time hanging out with other breakout investors. They share ideas. They share best practices. They do joint investments with each other. They lend money to each other. They refer business and business contacts to each other. They're really helping each other grow and grow and grow. And they're networking like crazy. They spend most of their time just managing their real estate business. They think of it and they have thought about it as a long time as a business. So they're not spending any time at all really in the day-to-day trenches of their real estate portfolio. They're spending most of their time just simply managing the people and managing the systems that keep it going from strength to strength and are paying down those equities and increasing the value of it and adding new assets to it. And these will be the first people to tell you that they're not brilliant, they're not geniuses. They just have that stubbornness and that resilience. And, they're, and most importantly, they're willing to learn and they're willing to, to change and they're willing to try new things. And you've got these investors, they don't just pop up during a boom. Or they don't just pop up, you know, when the property market's falling. You've got them in every single market cycle because they never stop. They don't stop doing business. They're not waiting for something to happen. These are absolute action takers, and they love taking action. That's that's how I would 
I think, define these breakout investors. And I would also, I'll just jump in there with um, these people see risk in a completely different way. The risk for, for these people is not taking action, not doing that deal. If they, if they miss out on a deal, they, they feel they missed out on a deal, that they didn't dodge a bullet. These are people who wake up every morning and they're like, I want my money turning today. I want to be deploying more debt today. I want to pick up an undermarket property today. That is how they think. That so and, and I, you know, I'm not gonna say that we're we're there. Um, but a lot of what we're saying here is very familiar to me. Yeah. In that each day you and I wake up and say, okay, how many deals can we get done today? Where can we find these deals? And you and I have had a, a, a thousand conversations. Like, okay, we need to, we need to pick up something in the next few days. We just we just we need some we need to get some deals done. We need to mm-hmm. buy some uh, property. So, it, it, the irony is is that the difference between the uh, the research investor and the breakout investor, it's just a journey. And by the time that the the, the over analytical research junkie gets to the breakout investor. He will realize that the risk truly was inaction over being over analytical. Yeah, that the risk because, of doing nothing is a much bigger risk than doing something and, and losing money. And that, that's actually the case for us as property flippers as well. I mean, you, people that start out flipping properties, there's a tendency to wait for the perfect deal, you know, the perfect floor plan on the corner lot with the perfect price and, and yeah. nothing, no cracks and no, no windows that aren't working and nothing that could possibly go wrong and nothing that could stop you making a 50% margin. And if you have that attitude, you never get anything done. And, and we're making a lot of quick decisions every day, buying properties that we never would have done earlier in our career because we'd just be worrying about too much stuff that could go wrong. But now we have the, the attitude is that it's actually riskier not to do it. You know, because we're right. doing deals because they give us the financial freedom to do other stuff. Because it's all evidence based. The bottom line is, is that as you start doing deals and as you start coming in contact with what can go wrong, so the bottom line with real estate is one of the reasons I love it is by and large, if you stay in your lane. Now, I'm not saying you know go out there and start buying shopping centers or go out there and start building new subdivisions. But mm-hmm. I'm talking about if you stay in your lane. As we do, we, 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 you and I are very strict about that. Like, what is our lane? Our lane is concrete block homes. There's very, very few components in it. Um, you know, there's a roof, there's an AC, there's doors, floors, baseboards, there's a kitchen and bathrooms. It's, uh, you know, a garage door, front door, windows. It's a very, very simple piece of, 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 of product. Yeah. And once you do one and, you know, you experience maybe a few little things that go wrong in this one and you do another and eventually you get to see all of the things that can go wrong. And the bottom line is, is that I had a sewer issue just before I got on this podcast. Somebody sent me, oh my God, da, 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 da. I sent a guy out, he scoped it. I said, go fix it. It was $1,200. That's it, done. Now that's, a, you know, to a lot of people like, oh my God, that was a $1,200 thing. Like, no, that was in a reserve fund. That was fine. I just go out there, fix it. You know, he called me from the site. He said, listen, um, this is what's going on. This is what it's going to cost. I'm like, okay, go ahead and do it. That's as much stress as it caused me. But to the analytical investor who is micro-analyzing his, uh, his, his annual yield, he'll never get beyond one house. Because he'll say, oh my God, you, you know, I thought this was going to be a, a 5.6% net yield and it's a 4.8% net yield. This, this sucks. I'm not going to do it again. Oh, sure. um, people freaking out about uh, utility bills where they're paying you know, 30 or $40 during a vacancy period and they're freaking out about a utility bill. I mean, that is the definition of sweating the small stuff to me. That, yeah. that is not important at all in the greater scheme of things. You, know, you need yeah. to focus on the big picture, which is the six-figure sums and the seven-figure sums, not the pocket yeah. change. So I think the takeaway, Colin, from this podcast is for a lot of people, this is a process. Okay, we, we basically, as human beings, we all do a, a little bit of the research junkie phase. Hmm. And, you know, a lot of us kind of enter that kind of mom and pop phase. There, there's no doubt about it. Sure. You know, that unintentional mom and pop phase. And well-worn path. You know, for a lot of people use it to, to achieve real wealth once they move on from it. I mean, it's nothing wrong with starting there at all. But a few, fewer people move into the intentional phase. Hmm. And you only really start to... In my experience, you only really start to think like an investor when you start moving into that intentional phase. 
where you're not sweating the small stuff. There is no evidence that everything is going to go wrong. There's no evidence to that at all. In fact, quite to the contrary, there's evidence that a lot of things are going well. Yeah. And it's once you, you get into that, that intentional phase, um, start to learn and you're not sweating the small stuff and you have a, a good team around you, you understand how to psychologically absorb good news and bad news. And uh, that's when you can kind of get into that breakout phase. And breakout phase is when you leave your job. I, I know a lot of guys in breakout phase and they all work full-time in real estate. And uh, you, you and, and I well Full-time might be 20 hours a week, by the way, for some of these that's multimillionaires right. because they've got great teams managing the day-to-day that's right. for them. Yeah. That's yeah. And there's a simple route to get from the, you know, the category three intentional over to the breakout. Um, it's incredibly... It's incredibly easy to jump into do, to, from, to jump from level three to level four because, as Colin mentioned earlier, you're starting to now you're starting to go to the right real estate conferences where those intentional investors and breakout investors are. You start finding the capital is it, it, the, the real estate is awash with capital. Yeah, and there's more capital out there than 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 you can shake a stick at, as you well know. Yeah, so like the, having the money is is not an excuse. I mean, you you know, getting to ten said that's it. I can't borrow any more money. That's just not true. You know, even if you don't have money for a down payment, there's still a lot of action you can take. Just get onto Bigger Pockets or one of these other forums. Everybody's had whatever problem you're having before and has found a way to overcome it, and you can too. And that's yeah. the absolute truth. So the capital is something that is, I think, the, one of the big kind of misnomers out there. It's like, oh, well, I don't have the money. Um, it's amazing how real estate is uh, flexible and creative. And there's a lot of capital out there that want to do deals with you. So, yeah, um, yeah I think that that's, that's, that's the lesson today, Colin, is if you want to get to level four, you know, spend as little time in level one and two as you can and get yeah. to level three pretty quickly. and professionalize your thoughts, set out a clear goal, put a clear strategy in place, learn to trust people, get to level three, put the action together that, that's going to get you to the upper end of level three. And by the time you get to level four and the breakout investors, you're not going to be listening to podcasts like this. I think that's it. Once you're at the upper end of level three, which is kind of 10 rentals, the people that you have in place that manage those rentals and manage that portfolio for you, You'll, you'll probably realize that there's not much additional demands on your time to go from 10 to 20. And that's the beauty of it. You can go from 10 to 20 without having to expand any of your time. You might need to network a little bit more with like-minded investors. You might need to put a, tweak your systems a little bit or put an extra virtual assistant somewhere or put an extra property manager somewhere. But it's, it's all resources you can allocate. It shouldn't really... The people that own 50 rentals don't spend five times as much time dealing with them as the people that own 10 rentals. That's for sure. And that's, you know, that's what a lot of people realize when they get to the upper end of that. You don't need to stop. I mean, you certainly can stop with 10 rentals. You'll you have enough money to have a comfortable lifestyle. But I think a lot of people realize this is actually fun and this is actually easy and I'm enjoying this. I'm going to go to 20 rentals because that's you know, even more freedom and, and even more interesting people that they're going to meet on their journey. And just have that freedom point. to take a Tuesday and a Wednesday and a Thursday off to go to Denver to meet a bunch of people to talk about some interesting real estate stuff. That's a lot of fun for people and they enjoy doing it. It's a great point. It's a great point. Real estate is gives you a truly wonderful lifestyle uh, if you decide to get there. And just remember, if you're not prepared to take a little bit of risk, you're going to work for somebody who does. That's a good way to end the podcast. I love that expression, David. And uh, yeah, I think this is a good show. I've enjoyed it. Yeah, me too. Thanks a million, Colin. And uh, we'll, we'll cover other topics uh, in the future, but I hope that uh, your listeners get, uh, I, I hope they get something out of this today because it's meant to be a thought-provoking hmm. uh, podcast and I hope that it was. Absolutely. And by the way, feedback is always welcome. We'd love you to give us a rating for the show if you enjoy listening to it. We'd love you to send an email to us if you've got feedback on it or ideas for future shows or future guests. You know, get in touch with us about your, your thoughts on this podcast. We'd love to hear from you. Okay, thank you, Colin. All right, David. Take care. Bye. Bye-bye. This recording contains general information relating to the real estate market, and it is for educational purposes only. Buyers should always seek appropriate legal, tax, and financial advice from suitably qualified professionals before entering into any real estate transaction. 
Actual returns from rental properties will always vary from person to person and deal to deal based on unique circumstances. And while we've no reason to doubt the validity of comments of any guests on our show, we do not warrant their accuracy. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Torcana Real Estate Investment Show with Colin Murphy. Don't forget to hit subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play for new episodes and tips on building a rental property portfolio.